Let me begin by saying happy Mother's Day. Um, We are grateful to mothers who love us. But if you're here to listen to a Mother's Day sermon, uh, you will get one on Jacob and Laban. Um, I was talking to a young man yesterday, and uh, he said that here's the, the Mother's Day sermon. Well, Jacob listened to his mother, think back, Rebecca, early on, and look where it's gotten him. Happy Mother's Day. No, no. So no morality tell here, um, but it is a great privilege to hear the word of God on the Lord's day. So let us turn to Genesis chapter 31. Uh, that's where we'll be. Um, we'll get there in a second. Alan read a large chunk of this passage for us, um, but just to kind of get us back up to speed since it's been a couple of weeks. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at the first 21 verses of this chapter and we saw Jacob's flight home. Um, God commanded Jacob to return home, and he did so. But that's not the full picture, as you know. Um, He tricked Laban, and he didn't tell him. He left without telling him. Now, it's likely that Laban would have tried to prevent him from leaving had he told him. But nonetheless, Jacob tricked him and left without saying a word. And that's where we left off two weeks ago with verse 21, seeing Jacob fleeing from Laban. Now this morning we pick up and we'll look at verses 22 and we'll go down to 55. And here we'll see Laban pursue Jacob, followed by this intense exchange between the two men. And this will result in the establishment of a covenant between the two men. I think that's prominent. It's pretty pretty important that they um, establish a covenant because before Laban's only given his word, and now they will actually establish a covenant relationship here. So once these two men, they part ways, this will be the last time that we see Laban in the scriptures. Yes, his name will be mentioned at times, but this is the last time we meet this man in God's word. And since Laban played such a prominent role in Jacob's sanctification, we'll consider his life in contrast to that of Jacob. Laban is a man of the earth. He's earthly minded. He cares about his own possessions, his wealth. He does whatever he can to gain an advantage over and above others. Furthermore, he's a pagan. He worships false gods. Jacob, on the other hand, is a man of God. He's far from perfect as we know. But Jacob is a man who follows God. He walks in God's ways, albeit imperfectly, yet through it all, he shows himself to be a worshiper of the one true God. And while we see a contrast between these men, we also see a contrast between their gods. Laban's gods can be stolen and hidden in a saddlebag, whereas Jacob's God is the one true God who remains faithful to his promises. Remember back in chapter 28, he told Jacob prior to arriving in Padan Aram with Laban, he said, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And as we have seen, God has been present with Jacob. And he will continue to be present with Jacob as he brings Jacob back home. So the plan this morning is to walk through this passage and then draw out those contrasts, the contrast between Jacob and Laban and the contrast between Laban's gods and Jacob's God, who is the one true God. 
And your worship guide um, is always giving you a, an outline here just so you can understand the flow of the text. Um, verses 22 through 25, we see that Laban pursues Jacob. He learns that Jacob has fled, and so he takes off in a hot pursuit after him. Then in verses 26 through 42, we have a rather lengthy section here where we see the heated exchange between these two men. This conflict is 20 years in the making. And so you can just feel the intensity brewing between these two. And then as a result, we have the covenant. We'll see that in verses 43 through 54. And then in verse 55, Laban says his goodbyes. And then he returns to his home. So Laban will pursue Jacob. They confront one another, really. Laban confronts Jacob. Jacob will defend himself. And then they will establish a covenant agreement. And then Laban will go home. So at this time, let's go ahead and read the rest of our passage. We'll be, pick up in verse 43 and read down to 55, and then I'll pray. So Genesis 31, verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galiad. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galiad and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God as a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus Christ by the powerful working of the Spirit who has brought us from death to life. We are grateful for the gift of life, for mothers who gave birth to us and raised us, but we are eternally grateful for the new birth as you have caused your children to be born again to be born of the Spirit and to be united to Christ. We're grateful for the salvation of your church. We are grateful that you have redeemed a people for yourself. 
And as we are reminded through your word, this is all of grace. Because we are not worthy apart from Christ. He alone is worthy. So help us this morning to see the glory of Christ. Speak to us clearly through your preached word. Stir up godly affections within us. Oh, that we might draw from the wells of our salvation and might we do this with joy. Give us eyes to see and know the great joy that is to be had in you. Might we continually renounce the things of this world, of this earth, and look to you, O God. I pray that you would do that work this morning through your word. Help us, I pray. Amen. So once again, to remind you, as we look at this passage, we have Jacob on the run. He's followed God's call to return to his homeland. And while he obeyed God's command, he tricked Laban. Just look at verses 20 and 21, just to give us a little refresher here. Verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So in these verses, we learn that Jacob has crossed the Euphrates River. He's headed toward the hill country in Gilead. Um, There's a map in your worship guide. If you're a map person here on page six, um, you can just see where these events are taking place. Um, Gilead, as you'll see, is east of the Jordan River. And if you look west, so if you find Gilead, the hill country of Gilead, and then you look west of the Jordan, you'll see the city called Shechem. Well, that's where Jacob is going. He will eventually buy a piece of land there and he'll settle there for a time. We'll get there at the end of chapter 33. So Jacob, as you can see on the green line, he's come from the north and he's now relatively close to his destination. But before he gets there, Laban catches up to him. He's almost home, but Laban will catch up to him before he makes it. And as you may recall, Laban, he wasn't home when Jacob left. As we see in verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. Remember, Laban has gone to shear his sheep. That's a big event. He's gathered with other sheep shearers. They would have a a celebration, a festival at the end of of this period of time. And so Laban's not home to see Jacob leaving. It's not like Jacob could just sneak off in the quiet of night anyways. He's got a pretty big family, lots of possessions. So it would have been noticeable. I mean, especially when you think about the 11 children and now all of a sudden you don't hear them anymore, it would have been noticeable. Their, their absence was noticeable, but also their, their departure would have been noticeable as well. But Laban wasn't home, so someone had to come and inform him. And it looks like it took about three days for them to get to Laban to let him know. And so once Laban finds out, what does he do? Well, verse 23, we see what he does. He takes his kinsmen with him and he pursues Jacob for seven days. So he goes in hot pursuit of Jacob. But before he gets to him, before he overtakes him, it's interesting to note and it's interesting to see what happens here because he's pursuing, he's following close after him. And then in verse 24, we see that God comes to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream. So God will appear to this pagan man in a dream. 
Let me just ask you a trivia question here. Who remembers the last time in Genesis that God spoke to a pagan man in a dream? Anybody remember? Starts the nay. Abimelech. Remember, he spoke to King Abimelech in a dream um, at night, saying, do not harm Abraham. And so now again, we have God speaking to another pagan in a dream by night and speaking to Laban. And he tells him, look, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Remember, Laban's in hot pursuit of Jacob. He's basically taking his posse with him and he's going to catch him. He's able to travel much faster than Jacob because he doesn't have children, he doesn't have livestock. But before he gets there, God speaks to him. And it's implied here that Laban does not have good intentions. He's apparently aggressive. He's hostile toward Jacob. And so God tells him, do not say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This phrase really indicates for us that Laban has to be very careful how he speaks to Jacob. One commentator notes, silence is not imposed on Laban. Rather, even if he feels that he has legitimate grievance, Laban is not to prosecute and take action against Jacob. God has corked the bottle of his aggressiveness. Before we move along into the next section here, I want us to think about what we have here. Laban, he's in hot pursuit of Jacob, but God speaks to him. The very God who promises to be with Jacob, he speaks to Jacob's adversary. But as we'll see in the next section, Laban's gods, they're not capable of speaking. Laban's gods cannot see or speak, whether it be by day or by night. Yet the God who created all reveals himself to Laban. He reveals himself to Laban in a dream, while the pagan gods, we find out, are really not gods at all. The one true God sees what Laban is doing and he speaks. The pagan gods certainly can't do this. They can't see. They're nothing more than wood and stone. But yet the true, one true God sees and he speaks. So now that Laban has caught up to Jacob, He's now, if you look in verse 25, he's overtaken Jacob. Jacob has pinched his, pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban has pitched his tent in the, in the hill country as well. And then in verse 26, we see this exchange between Laban and Jacob. So Laban here, just to give you an idea of what we're about to see, Laban initiates this confrontation. He brings charges against Jacob. Jacob will respond in defense. Laban will then go and unsuccessfully search for his household gods. And then Jacob will respond. And it looks like, as we see in 36, he became angry and he berates Laban. Jacob's anger is really 20 years in the making. And just a side note, this is one reason why we counsel married couples, or really anyone for that matter, to deal with conflict quickly. Don't sweep it under the rug because eventually the dust and all will come out. And that's what we see here. 20 years of conflict just waiting. And it's not pretty. So turning our attention here to verse 26, really 26 through 30, we see Laban's accusation against Jacob. He begins by saying, you've tricked me. 
He, he accuses Jacob of trickery. What have you done that you have tricked me? And you've driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. This accusation is partially true. Back in verse 20, we read that Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. But far be it from Jacob to drive away his wives like captives of the sword. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 14 through 16, where they agreed to go with Jacob. Jacob has not taken them captive. He's not made them do something against their will. And then in verse 27, Laban continues with his accusations. I mean, he essentially is saying here, why didn't you tell me? So why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me? If you did, I would have thrown you a party, so to speak. I would have sent you off well. I mean, we would have taken you to the airport and we would have, we would have, would have bought you dinner. We would have celebrated as you left. That's what he's essentially saying here. And to keep up with appearances, he says in verse 28, why didn't you permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? You've done foolishly. Think about Laban. 20 years worth of Laban. We've, we've known Laban for 20 years here. And all we've seen of Laban is tricking Jacob over and over and over. His daughters, the last time they're talking about how our father has taken from us. He's, he's basically sold us his property. And now Laban's acting like a victim. Laban, who's been deceiving and tricking Jacob for years, is acting like the victim here? I mean, that's what 14 and 15, in those verses, Laban's daughters talk about, you sold us. He sold us his property. He devoured basically what should have been ours. And now he's acting like a compassionate father. Laban acknowledges no wrongdoing on his part. He never has. That's the, the characteristic of Laban. He never acknowledges wrongdoing. He always steers the conversation away from any sort of responsibility that he might take. He, doesn't, he always will cast blame or, or make a new deal. Doesn't address, hey, well, why did you deceive me on my wedding night? Well, hey, here's a new deal for you. Well, it, it changes the wages 10 times. I mean, Laban tricks, he deceives. And now... He's casting the blame on Jacob. How could you do this to me? What have you done? Laban lacks self-awareness. But at the very least, in verse 29, he does acknowledge his limits. Now he does so in a prideful way. He says, it is in my power to do you harm. Laban is essentially saying here, I'm the judge, the jury, the executioner, and I could do you harm if, you, if I wanted to. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to do anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I could do you harm, but God has restrained me. Your God, the God of your father has restrained me. Laban's like the little guy in the fight, boasting about his strength while being held back by a much bigger man. You know the picture. You've seen it in sports, right? You've seen the smaller guy, he's picked up, he's removed from the fight, keeps running his mouth while his much larger teammate is restraining him, holding him back. Well, this actually pales in comparison to God and Laban. But at the very least, Laban does acknowledge that he's being restrained. He acknowledges that I could do you harm, but God is restraining me from you. And notice he says, but the God of your father. 
This is not my God. That's not what Laban's saying. This is the God of your people, and he is preventing me from doing you harm. And then in verse 30, we, we have a pretty ironic statement. We, we, it's, I find it ironic that he says, your God, the God of your father is, is restraining me from hurting you. And then verse 30, and now you've gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? You see the irony here. Your God is holding me back from doing you harm, but my gods have been stolen. As John Chrysostom writes, this is fourth century. What kind of gods are these of yours that can be stolen? Aren't you ashamed to say, why did you steal my household gods? Chrysostom goes on to say, see the extraordinary extent of Laban's self-deception such that people endowed with reason should worship wood and stone. These gods of yours, Laban, could not prevent their being stolen. How could they, after all, being made of wood and stone? The God of this good man, on the contrary, even if the good man was unaware of it, checked your aggression. We'll return to this contrast in a little bit later. But this is a good time to ask a simple question. Who is your God? Do you worship the one true God? Or do you worship the gods of this world? Do you worship the God who is able or the gods who are not able? The gods of this world are powerless. I mean, they can be stolen. I mean, do you see the irony in that? They could be stolen. They could be hidden. A woman can sit on top of these gods and say, the way of women is upon me. That's the gods of this world. That's your gods, Laban. But you acknowledge that the one true God restrained you from harming Jacob. So which God will you worship? The gods of this world who are powerless or the one true God who is the almighty God who made the heavens and the earth? So Laban acknowledges God's power, yet he's upset that his gods of wood and stone have been stolen. And that really concludes Laban's initial accusation. He's like the prosecuting attorney bringing charges against Jacob, and now it's Jacob's turn to respond. In verses 31 and 32, we see Jacob's defense. He first will appeal to his fear of Laban, And then unknowingly, he pronounces the death penalty upon his wife. So we'll get there. We'll see that. So in verse 31, Jacob defends his actions and says, because I was afraid. This is why I left, because I was afraid. This is why I didn't tell you. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Jacob's concern is warranted. I mean, Laban has shown himself to be a dishonest man. He's not been honest in his dealings with Jacob over the past 20 years. So Jacob is concerned that Laban would take his wives from him if he told him he was planning to leave. It does look like Laban is a powerful man. But Jacob has no reason to fear Laban because God is with him. God has protected him all these years and will continue to protect him. Yet Jacob currently... I would say is blinded or his focus is blurred. He's more focused upon Laban than he is upon the God who is with him. 
But in this, we see at the end, it looks like Jacob truly does fear God. He truly does see God. But right now, it looks like Jacob is fearing this man more than he fears God. But it looks like Jacob will not stay there as he will swear upon the fear of his father Isaac. We'll get there in a moment. But after appealing to his fear of Laban, he says, I'm afraid that you would take your daughters from me. He then unknowingly pronounces the death penalty of anyone on his, in his camp, but, it, but it's really his wife, Rachel. But he, he, he unknowingly pronounces the death penalty upon her because he says in verse 32, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. But as we read at the end of the verse, now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So he's saying, if you find someone with your, if with anything that belongs to you, they will not live. So he's inviting Laban to investigate, to search for evidence. And if he finds it, we have the death penalty. And so Laban goes on his search, and in verses 33 through 35, he searches for evidence, but to no avail. He's so consumed by these household gods that he rummages through the tents of Jacob, Leah, their servants, then Rachel's tent. But as we see in verse 34, Rachel had taken the household gods, and she put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And so Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. I mean, just think about these gods that Laban worships. They can be stolen. They can be contained in a camel's saddle. If you can put it in your console, on your, in your car, that is no god. And because of the insignificance of Laban's gods, Rachel, ta- Rachel takes them, places them in the camel's saddle, sits on them and says in verse 35, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. And notice Laban's gods could not call out to him. I mean, they weren't even that. They couldn't even say, hey, rescue, rescue us. They couldn't even do that. They were stolen. They were hidden. And Laban couldn't even find them. And at the end of the verse, he searched but did not find the household gods. So Laban's accusation was correct. Someone did steal his household gods, but he didn't find any evidence. So Jacob here is essentially exonerated because Laban found nothing within Jacob's camp that was stolen. You know, this little episode is somewhat anticlimactic. If this were a movie, we would expect Rachel to be caught And then Jacob would have a decision to make, either fulfill his vow, show himself to be a man of his word, or take back his vow and show himself to be double-minded or insincere, lacking integrity. But that's not what happens. Instead, God protects Jacob and his family. I would say this makes the point, once again, that it shows us that God's purposes of election stand and he will hold his people fast till the end. 
Now, this doesn't mean, remember, when we read narrative, it doesn't mean just because something happened means it gives us license to do it. This doesn't mean, hey, go steal stuff and God will protect you. That is not at all what we see here. If that's what you take away from this, you're misreading the text. But what we do see is God's protection of Jacob and his family in spite of Jacob and his family. God will bring forth his purposes. And those purposes are to bring forth the promised descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this setting, the circumstances actually turn on Laban rather than on Jacob. And Jacob is now exonerated before Laban and he takes him to task by airing his grievances in verses 36 through 42. So look at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry. I'll leave this to you to determine whether this is righteous anger or if this is murderous rage. I will leave that to you to to figure out. But we see that Jacob became angry and he berated Laban. The NIV says he took him to task. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? You felt through all my goods and what have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. So just imagine Jacob here is standing in front of Laban who's empty handed. And he says, show me what you found. What have I stolen from you? Lay it here so everybody can decide. And then we see the frustration. We see the 20 year buildup. And so he will talk about in verses 38 through 41, how he served Laban all these years. He sacrificed. Verse 39, he speaks about how he bore the loss. So, well, for 38, these 20 years I've been with you. 39, whenever you bore a loss from your flock, a wild beast tore one of your livestock, I bore the loss because you required it from my hand. And then in 40, as a shepherd, we see that Jacob spent day and night out shepherding. In the day, it was the heat that consumed him. And then at night, it was the cold. He was oftentimes sleepless. 41, he talks about how these 20 years, I've been in your house. I've been doing all this for you. I've shepherded your your flock. Your flock has prospered greatly under my care. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. Laban has cheated Jacob. He's taken advantage of him, and Jacob just lays it all out. Remember, deal with conflict quickly. But here we see Jacob laying it all out after 20 years What did you find? You you, you searched through all my household. What did you find? Nothing. I've served you all these years and yet you have cheated me and tricked me. How can you come in here and say that I've cheated and tricked you? And Jacob says in 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. If not for God, who knows what would have come of Jacob? He would have been sent away as an empty handed beggar most likely. He might've worked hard for Laban, but then sent away with nothing but the clothes on his back. But Jacob says at the end of verse 42, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. God saw 
all that Laban had done to Jacob. And he actually protected Jacob from Laban. Laban acknowledges that here, but that's happened the whole time. And he's actually caused Jacob to prosper greatly in the midst of it all. Laban's gods could not see. They could not call out. God not only sees, he also acts. And he speaks as we see here. He spoke to Laban. He's spoken to Jacob before. God sees and God acts. But I also want you to see here a contrast between the two men before we get going in 43. I want you to notice how both men here hear the word of God. Both men were recipients of divine revelation. Yet one man remains in his pride. And he says, I would harm you. But your father's God is holding me back. While the other man attributes all that he has to God. Jacob knows that apart from God, he'd be nothing more than an empty-handed beggar. Jacob's come a long ways over these 20 years. The Lord has done a mighty work in him, and we see Jacob acknowledging God's providential dealings with him. But yet we see Laban maintaining his posture of pride and power. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. Laban lacks self-awareness. He looks out at Jacob's possessions. He looks out at Jacob's family. And what does he say? Mine. We know that only, there's only one who can make this claim. Only God can look out at everything and say, mine. But Laban, as one commentator notes, cast a pathetic shadow of himself. He begins with a statement that is grandiose and false. He still believes he has legitimate control over his daughters and grandchildren. Laban's claim to proprietorship over his daughters and grandchildren is essentially only a judicial fiction and a cry of frustration. Laban looks out at it all and says, this is mine. When God has taken... From Laban, remember, we saw that, and he's given to Jacob. But notice once again that Laban does not even address any of the accusations. I mean, Jacob laid out a pretty good case right here, and Laban responds by saying, all that you have is mine. And then he follows up after this by asking a question at the end of verse 43. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? He doesn't address any of Jacob's accusations, but why would he? He doesn't see himself as the one that needs correction. He sees himself most likely as an upright and righteous man. He justifies himself at every turn. In Laban's eyes, it's Jacob who's the problem. And that's why he's going to make this proposal here to make a covenant with Jacob. He proposes that these two men make a covenant that Jacob will not treat his daughters unfairly. 
And he says, look at verse 44, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let us make a covenant here. I mean, prior to this, Jacob has only received Laban's word. And Laban has gone against his word 10 times. Now they'll cut a covenant. And a covenant is, remember, an oath-bound promise. And so Jacob agrees to this proposal. In verse 45, we see him taking a stone and setting it up as a pillar. Then in 46, he charges his kinsmen to gather stones. They take the stones and make a heap. These stones will serve as a witness to the ceremony. And in a sense, as we get to 52, they also serve as boundary markers. So Jacob sets this stone up. He also has his kinsmen set up stones. And then we read at the end of verse 46 that they eat a meal by the heap. I think that that actually goes to tell us what's going to come at the end of 54, because I think it shows back now we see the ceremony. But so what we have is these, the naming of the stones. So after they set them up, Laban calls the stone Yegar Sahadutha. Jacob calls it Galid or Galiad. And what we have here are really two names, meaning the same thing. They both mean a heap of stones. The only difference is that Laban uses an Aramaic word, an, an Aramaic name, because he's an Aramaean. And then Jacob uses a Hebrew term. And both of these mean a heap of stones. After this, Laban will call, in 49, he will call this place Mitzpah as well. Mitzpah means watch post. The reason he names it this is found in the rest of the verse. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Um, I would encourage you not to use that as a blessing. Because that's not the idea here. You may have heard that before. You may have heard that even in churches, giving you a blessing. The Lord watched between us as we part. What, what, what Laban is saying here? Let God watch, let God judge between us. You go your way, I go my way. We are not gonna see one another again. That's the idea here. This is, not, this is one of suspicion, not of the Lord watch after you and keep you. That is not at all what Laban is saying here. So Laban is... Then he's, well, let's look, what he's, what, let's look at this a little bit further. He says, the Lord watched between you and me. So is Laban acknowledging the superiority of Jacob's God here? When he says the Lord, this is the name of God he's using here. Is Laban actually saying, okay, yeah, your God will judge between us. Is that what he's saying? Well, I hope I'm wrong here for Laban's sake. But I don't think this has anything to do with Laban bowing the knee to the one true God. I see this as Laban appealing to Jacob's God as a witness. And he's saying, when we're apart, your God will be a witness between us. For as we see in verse 50, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, God is witness between me and you. God will see. He's just threatening Jacob into submission. Well, Laban has not been the best of fathers. He does care for his daughters. And he makes this covenant to ensure that his daughters are cared for. But this does not mean that Laban is now all of a sudden a worshiper of God, a God-fearing man. And we'll see that more clearly in verse 53. But before we get there, we see Laban establishing these stones as a border between him and Jacob. In verse 52, he says, this heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you 
and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. This will be a border. Laban's concerned that Jacob might come back and avenge himself. He might avenge the wrong that Laban has done to him over these past 20 years. He wronged Jacob. He has a guilty conscience, it looks like. However, he never acknowledges his guilt. That's his problem. Remember, we, Alan read for us, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Laban does not do that. His pride blinds him to the truth. And now he's entering into a covenant with Jacob to protect himself. Yes, he is seeking the betterment of his daughters. That's a good thing. We got to celebrate that. But he doesn't want Jacob coming back into retaliation. And so then he says in verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, let him judge between us. Now, it's not entirely clear what Laban means here. He's either a syncretist, meaning he's fusing the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor as the God of their father, or he's appealing to multiple gods by referring to the God of Abraham and then to the God of Nahor, which is his father. But from the grammar here, it looks like he's appealing to multiple gods. The verb judge, so judge is a plural verb and If you know anything about English grammar and really even Hebrew grammar, a plural verb demands a plural subject. So while Laban is either a syncretist or polytheist, I think he's a polytheist here, at the end of the day, his theology is a little unclear. Laban's not our theologian. We we wouldn't want to go to his church where he's preaching. (laughs) Remember, he was concerned about household gods earlier. Now he's appealing to your God, the God of Abraham, and then the God of Nahor, his God. And as one commentator, I say, helpfully notes, if there's some ambiguity about Laban's theology, because there is, there is no ambiguity about Jacob's theology. He simply swears by his father's God. I mean, look at the end of verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Back in 42, he used that same name, the fear of Isaac. We've not seen that in scripture. We don't see that outside of this um, that I'm aware of. But we see Jacob appealing to the God of his father, to the God of Abraham as the fear of Isaac. This is the one God whom Isaac feared. As one commentator notes, this could be translated as the awesome one of Isaac who inspires fear and dread. The idea here is that this God is not one to be trifled with. And so Jacob swears upon his name. It's not what, we don't even see Laban making any kind of, we don't see him swearing. He certainly doesn't swear upon his household gods because where are they? Well, they're lost in, in his mind. But Jacob swears upon the fear of his father Isaac. And because Jacob is a God-fearing man, we see him worshiping. In verse 54, Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. So he most likely offers a burnt offering here and then they eat. They have this covenant meal. And then they spend the night in the hill country. And then in verse 55, we have the conclusion. 
Early in the morning, Laban arose. So they've made the covenant. They've established the covenant. They've eaten, they've spent the night, and then Laban awakes. He kisses his grandchildren, he kisses his daughters, and he blesses them. And then Laban departs and he returns home. And that's the last we see of Laban. It does look like a peaceful departure at the very least, but that's all God's doing. Laban came to do Jacob harm. God protected Jacob and the two men make a covenant. And then Laban departs, he returns home, and that concludes the Jacob and Laban narrative. So as we step back and consider Genesis 31, a relatively lengthy chapter, it's helpful to note that this is not a manual for conflict resolution. It's also helpful to note that this is not a manual to teach us how to deal with our in-laws, how to relate with them or to them. It's not a manual to teach married couples how to leave father and mother. What we have here is God's word. And what we have here is a, a, a narrative, a short narrative that teaches us that God is God. He is faithful to his promises. For he protects Jacob and he brings him back to the promised land. And we're reminded here that God will not be reduced to a household God. He cannot be contained in saddlebags, for he is the great almighty God. Laban's gods were made of wood and stone. Whereas the one true God is eternal. He's uncreated. In fact, he created the wood and the stone that someone fashioned Laban's gods into. Laban's gods could be moved by human hands. Whereas the one true God, he cannot be moved. He can't be moved from one place to another for he is everywhere. Laban's gods could be stolen, showing the insignificance of his gods. Whereas the one true God, he can't be stolen. I mean, it's actually unfathomable to even imagine a, 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 a any kind of circumstance where he could be stolen. But we think about Laban's gods, they're so insignificant that they can be taken and hidden. Laban's gods could be contained in a saddlebag and they couldn't even be found. Whereas the one true God cannot be contained for he is infinite perfection. He is truly glorious and great. Laban's gods could do nothing to help him in his time of need while the one true God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign and he reigns over every catastrophe, over every illness, over every cancer cell, and over every sorrow and conflict that you will ever endure in this life. He is sovereign over it all. He's not caught off guard for one minute. He sees all, he knows all, and he reigns over all. Laban's gods were not really gods. While the one true God is God and there is no God other. He will not be trifled with. He is worthy of all honor and of all glory. And the only way we as creatures can truly grasp the glory of the one true God is through the Son of Man become, I'm sorry, through the Son of God becoming man. The son of God, who is God himself, he condescends to us that we might draw near to him. We might draw near to the father through him by the powerful working of the spirit in us. 
And apart from God working in us, you know who we, we would be like? We'd be just like Laban. Left to our own devices, we'll exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Apart from Christ, we would, see, we, we would not see God as he is. We would, in fact, worship the things of this world as if they are God. I mean, just think about it. Without Christ, we are just like Laban, the man of the earth. We come from the earth and we worship the earth. Laban is an earthly-minded man, and his life reflects his earthly-mindedness. He's so focused upon himself. He's so focused upon his possessions and how others can benefit him. I mean, just think about what we have here with Laban. We have Laban, the older man, taking advantage of his son-in-law, Jacob, instead of pouring into him, investing in him, discipling him. I mean, notice how he complains about Jacob leaving in the manner he did. Do you think he taught Jacob anything different? He actually taught Jacob how to be tricky, how to be deceptive. That's the example he gave. He's a far cry from Titus 2. Titus 2 charges older men to teach younger men. Instead of discipling Jacob, he probably just sat around and complained about him. I'm sure some of you can relate. We complain about the younger generation instead of doing anything about it. Are we teaching younger people how to be Christians in this strange new world? Thinking back to Laban, he's a far cry from that. I mean, he doesn't even touch that. He uses Jacob for his own advantage. He doesn't love him. He's a self-centered man, a man of this world. He's greedy, he's covetous. He's a man who's confused by what ought to be plain to him. He suppresses the truth about God and he worships created things. His God is his wealth. And we see how he responds when that's taken away from him. He goes to great lengths to track Jacob down, to do him harm, because he didn't get what he wanted. Yet as we've seen here, God protected Jacob. God protects the man of God. Laban wanted to harm him, yet God protected him. He protected a man who was, actually has a lot of Laban in him. If not for God doing a work in Jacob, Jacob probably would be like Laban, if not worse. But because God knows Jacob, because God has elected Jacob as one of his own, we see God doing a work in him to draw him closer to himself. As such, we have Jacob who is not a man of the earth like Laban. He's a man of God. He's a man of peace, not conflict. I mean, notice here, he acknowledges God. So if you, if, I hope you hear the resemblances to, to Romans 1. Laban fits the unrighteousness, and Jacob actually does what what we see in Romans 1 is what does not characterize the unrighteous. Jacob acknowledges God. He gives thanks to God. He worships God. And at the end of the day, he realizes that he is utterly dependent upon God because God is faithful. Furthermore, notice how Jacob has endured 20 years of mistreatment and suffering at the hand of Laban. 
would argue the only reason Jacob, the man of God, could faithfully endure suffering and mistreatment is because his Savior will endure suffering and mistreatment. Jacob, like his father Abraham, looked forward to the day of Christ. And he was able to endure because Christ will suffer on behalf of his people. Think about it. Jesus Christ died a sinner's death to free the man of God, the woman of God, from our sin. Jesus Christ died a sinner's death to break the hold that this world has on us. Jesus Christ died a sinner's death to open the eyes of the man of God to see his wickedness and to see his sin in light of the glory of Christ. Therefore, the man of God does not understand himself to be a victim as does Laban. The man of God understands that he has greatly offended the Almighty God and therefore he goes to the Almighty God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So when we consider Jacob in contrast to Laban, we see a big difference. One man placed his faith in the things of this world. The other man placed his faith in God who made the things of this world. So which describes you? Are you a man or woman of the world? Or are you a man or woman of God? Are you a boy or girl of the world? Or a boy or girl of God? Do you long to be with Christ who is your life? Or are you bored with the things of God? Do you chase the things of this world? Or do you look to Christ? seeking to walk in his footsteps, even when it means you must endure suffering and mistreatment. So I exhort you this morning to let go of the things of this world, to look to Christ. Stop thinking so highly of yourself and look to Christ. Look to Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The man of this world refuses to humble himself before Christ. He refuses to bow the knee and confess Christ as Lord. The man of this world worships phony gods, gods that are nothing, but the man of God humbly submits himself before Christ because he realizes there is none greater than the triune God whose glory we see in the face of Jesus Christ. The man of this world wants the world and everything in it. The man of God wants Christ Jesus, our Lord. So to whom do you belong? Do you belong to Christ? Then go. Go. Enjoy him. Delight yourself in him. But if you're given to the world, you know who you belong to? You belong to the devil. And if this is you, it doesn't matter if you're young, old, or somewhere in between. If this is you, I beg you to bow your knee to the king of kings, the almighty God who cannot be contained in saddlebags, for, there is, for the earth and its fullness is his. 
I beg you to look to him because he is a sweet, sweet savior. For all who come to him, he will by no means turn you away and he will keep you to the end. So don't look to the gods of this world, which are not gods at all. Look to Christ and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears and eyes to see. Sometimes our vision is distorted or blurred because of the things of this world, the circumstances of this world, but I pray that we would see clearly the glory of Christ. And I pray this morning we would be able to sing here in a few minutes that I would rather have Jesus than anything. I pray that that would truly be our heart's cry and that we would forsake the things of this world, using the things that you've given us for good, for your glory, but I pray that our heart's desire would be Christ. So draw us to yourself through Christ by the powerful working of your spirit and help us to see that the things of this world, they're all decaying. Help us to long for a greater kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a day where we will be with you for all eternity. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name.